So we are going to get last week. Last week we talked about labor Zionism, about this idea of not just creating a new Jewish society, but a new Jew, and the the way that traditional Jewish forms were reinterpreted uh, into modern, modern uh, and um, uh, uh, idioms and how the labor Zionist movement wanted to create a, um, a society of Jews who, who were in touch with nature and worked the land and created their own society and all of that. So <clears throat> we're going to keep talking about, about different, and we also talked a bit about religious Zionism, Rav Cook, and how the, uh, in response to the emergence of the Zionist movement, some religious Jews started to figure out uh, ways to accept this profoundly secular nation-building activity as a religious imperative. That was a new, another new permutation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and today I want to talk in a little while about another permutation of Zionism, which was called revisionist Zionism. But before I get to that, I want to go, I want to talk about more about historical events for a little while. The Zionist movement, the World Zionist movement in its first 20 years was very small. It was broke. <laughs> they didn't have the resources they wished they had. I think I talked about that last time. But they were a coherent organization. And they were building the institutions the bank, the national bank, the, uh, the uh, governing bodies, the, the uh, a structure in which different parties could uh, vote and compete within the Zionist movement. Um, and they also had an office in, Te in Tel Aviv that Arthur Rupin headed, which was tasked with purchasing land for Jewish settlement. They were an organized, though, as I said, frequently, uh, you know, uh, not have any money group that was working to build a Jewish state. They also <clears throat> were engaging in intense diplomatic efforts in Europe. And those diplomatic efforts finally bore fruit. Chaim Weizmann worked tirelessly in Britain to try to persuade the British government to recognize the right of the Jewish people to a homeland. And uh, in 1917, he persuaded Lord Balfour, who was, uh, the, I believe, the foreign secretary at the time um, <coughs> of the British Empire. And remember, with British Empire, big place. You got the British Empire on board. This is the end of the Victorian era. This is the, this is the sun never sets uh, on the British Empire to uh, make a declaration known as the Balfour Declaration. And the text of the Balfour Declaration is very short. Listen to it. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. The end. That's the Balfour Declaration. It's the first time 
that a, 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 um, a government, a national government, recognized officially the right of the Jewish people to a national home in Palestine. <coughs> yes, Paula. Were there any other countries that made similar declarations? Uh, no. The League of Nations, several years later, after the war ended, would ratify this. So yes, the League of Nations ratified this, and then it became, therefore, the policy of that international body. Uh, and then the United Nations, of course, in 1947, uh, voted for the partition. So it became, a, it became an international, pretty much de facto understanding that the Jewish people had a right to a national home in Palestine. There was language that Weizmann had pushed for, for not a national home, but for a nation. But he couldn't get that into this language. Okay, so what's going on? Yes? Who, who was His Majesty at this time? Help me. Uh, Victoria. Victor 1917. George. George. It was a George. Yeah. That's right. He didn't have a lot of sway by 1917. Um, <clears throat> this was a... Now, so... Let's look at context. First of all, it's the middle of the First World War. Okay? George V. George V, the famous George V. Okay. It's, it's the middle of the First World War. Right. Britain has designs on the carcass of the Ottoman Empire. Britain and the Allied forces are busy trying to defeat the Germans and the Ottomans. Uh, in this horrific war. Uh, so, they were going to play to every constituency that they could to gain support. So, the Balfour Declaration, which is happening, to, you know, recognizing the Jewish, pe the Jewish people's right to a national home, is happening at the same time that T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and other, uh, other forces in the British government, other, other you know, uh, power bases in the British government, are doing their best to get the Arabs together to fight the Turks. The Arabs hated the, the Ottomans. The Ottomans, the Turks, had kept the Arabs under their thumb in the, in the Ottoman Empire for 400 years, right? There was an emerging pan-Arab nationalism happening just like there was an emerging Jewish nationalism. Now we're going to talk about when we could say a Palestinian nationalism emerges. That comes a bit later. But there was, at this point, an Arab nationalism that had emerged. Uh, I mean, the first nation to declare independence under the Ottomans was Greece in 1830. Uh, since that time, all the other subject peoples of the Ottoman Empire had started their own stirrings of national uh, 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 aspirations. Yes? In 1830, when Greece became independent from the Ottomans, Greece was also the first country that acknowledged Haiti. So they understood. Um, Haiti? Yeah. Um, so... Um, the pan-Arab <clears throat> national movement uh, was stirring. 
and uh, they were the British were working them to get them allied with them in the fight against the Turks and making all kinds of promises to them. Promises in direct contradiction to the Balfour Declaration. Do you follow me, everybody? The British were playing both sides of the street. So, we, so there are legitimate claims in terms of British promises, both from the Arabs and from the Jews, for the same places. What did the, did the Arabs specifically object to the Balfour Declaration? Oh, yes. Absolutely. In fact, we can, if you want to date the beginning of the Jewish-Arab conflict as an active, you know, sort of yeah. as a something, as opposed to scattered um, skirmishes or land disputes, or you can date it to the Balfour Declaration. We have a 100-year-old conflict here that we, could, that we would call today the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Of course, there were no Israelis and there were no Palestinians at the time, so let's call it the Jewish-Arab conflict. Conversely, did the Zionists object to the promises to the Arabs? Or did yes, it gets even more complicated because Chaim Weizmann, who was, uh, the, again, um, he shortly thereafter was elected president of the World Zionist Organization, was a um, tireless diplomat. He made a trip to talk to Emir Faisal, who was a Bedouin king who, uh, in 1919, and they actually signed an agreement that, that gave the Jews, that where Faisal gave, acknowledged the Balfour Declaration. Uh, that agreement was scuttled a couple of years later because, remember now, World War I has ended. Britain and France are busy installing Bedouin chieftains as kings of new countries that they're making up. Transjordan, Iraq, you know, Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia. And they're installing their allies from the war who didn't necessarily have any actual national claims of leadership over these areas that were not actually, uh, you know, didn't have any reason to be nation states. I mean, when, a great witness of this is when Saddam Hussein was overthrown by the U.S., uh, it was clear that he had ruled Iraq through vicious and violent suppression and oppression. And the different groups and the idea of who's an Iraqi never really took hold because Iraq wasn't a place. So you have the Sunnis and the Shiites, but also the Kurds, and you have very different groups. And Iraq split up essentially into three different sections, right, based on actual kind of ethnic, um, religious, uh, linguistic, you know, differentiations in the Muslim world. Syria is an even greater case in point. It's coming out now the kind of... The, 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 the intense torture that Assad uh, engaged in in order to keep his people suppressed, and just as his father did. But in Syria, there's the Alawite, there's the Maronite Christians, there's the uh, Kurds in the Northeast, there's, the, uh, the, there's so many different groups who are only held together because of the brutality of the dictator. Um, 
I'm saying that to describe that even though there was a pan-Arab national movement among the intelligentsia, among the educated in the Arab world, there wasn't necessarily an organized... The, the idea of Arab identity as a national identity was only shared by an elite, I would say. Do you remember, just one second, do you remember Nasser, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was, this, who was the president of Egypt, and who, and remember, I remember maps from my childhood, Syria and Egypt were called the United Arab Republic. Right? This, was, this was the dream of a pan-Arab nationalism. Uh, it didn't last. But so I'm just, all I'm saying is it was a vaguely defined nationalism. Uh, yes? We know now that oil played a big part of, you know, what happened in the Middle East. That's right. And I'm wondering, at that time, they needed, what was the story? How did, how did anyone give away anything? Britain had its eye, Britain had its eye on Middle Eastern oil. <coughs> Therefore, so there, the British government, you could say, was divided into two factions. <clears throat> The philo-Semitic, the philo-Judaic, the, the, philo the, the folks in the British government, like Lord Balfour, who felt a deep sympathy for the Jews uh, and who uh, felt it was Britain's job as the global leader to historically redress the injustices that had been done to the Jews. There were plenty of Arabists, as they were called, in the British government who couldn't really care less about the Jews <coughs> and felt that British, Britain's interests lay in strong alliances with the Arabs, specifically and especially because of oil resources. Make sense, everybody? Yeah. That conflict led to the schizophrenia that I just described to you that would continue to uh, be kind of at the core of... So remember, 1918, Britain takes over Palestine. It becomes British Mandate Palestine That's right. from 1918 to 1947 for 30 years. And in that time, it's a, a, a nightmare for the British government because they have two competing factions within that mandate, both of whom want Britain to side with them. And Britain both tries to be fair at times gives with one hand, takes back with the other, suppresses violence at times, suppresses immigration at times, allows violence, you know, it's like a complete mess under the, uh, the British Mandate period, a complete mess, something that the British didn't create, um, and uh, in fact decided after the war to get out as soon as possible, right? So again, let's reflect on... Um, all right, so um, what happens with that? So the Balfour Declaration is a great coup for the Zionists because the, the most powerful nation in the world at that moment has given, uh, uh, has announced that they could have, a, that they deserved a national home in their uh, palace, in Palestine. Uh, what happens, I say, why does the, I say the conflict starts now? Because starting by 1919, 1920, Arab um, uh, riots start to break out against Jewish settlers. 
uh, Zionist settlers, right? So, so uh, the, um, the, the violence really starts to escalate. And it goes in waves over the 20s and the 1930s. And, and there are periods of more calm and then periods of intense violence. Uh, yes? But these settlers purchased their land at that time, right? Yes, let's talk about the land purchases. Um, okay, so this class is not here to prove who's right or who's wrong, right? Uh, the Zionists aren't the bad guys. The Palestinians who lived there saw people coming in to their territory. They had their own sort of uh, inchoate national aspirations. Um, and so there was, an, there was an unavoidable conflict. It appeared at times that there might be a way for uh, peaceful coexistence. And then something would happen, and the next wave of violence would erupt. The Palestinian society was not an organized national society. It was, uh, um, they were farming villages, and there were venerable leading families, the Husseinis, the Nashashibis, who uh, commanded respect. But there was no unified Palestinian leadership during these years. There's someone named Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was uh, a big problem for the Palestinians and for the Zionists because he was a, um, uh, his, his, his hard line and intolerance about allowing the Jewish settlement meant that there was no place, there was nobody to talk to. There was, he was the putative leader, the imam of the, of the area appointed by the British. Later, when he finally was uh, 10 years, 20 years later, when he uh, lost his position, he wound up allying uh, himself with the fascists and the Nazis against the British. And uh, um, Haj Amin Hosseini is a, owns a very um, <coughs> negative place in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because he, uh, because of his intolerance and his clever um, uh, adoption of anti-Semitism, European anti-Semitism, as part of his strategy for combating the Jews. Okay, but all of this is to say that there was not a strong unified Palestinian leadership. Yes? I had a question just that bears on that. So, I mean, in Europe, there were probably a thousand years or whatever of the kind of doctrinal anti-Semitism when it came out of the right. church and everything, but was there anything like that with the Arabs? There is not, amongst the Muslims, no. First of all, the Arabs in, in Israel were both Christian and um, uh, Muslim. Yeah. There, were, there was a significant population of Christian Arabs, and there was, uh, uh, they were a minority, but there were a lot of them, and also of Muslim Arabs. The theological underpinnings of European anti-Semitism do not exist in Islamic thought, that the Jews are uniquely responsible for the ills of the world. Uh, so it's different. Um, there have been the, the Jews in the Islamic world occupied the status known as dhimmi, which is not just unique to the Jews, but to any group under Muslim rule, who had not submitted to Islam. Dimi. Dimi. And they were second-class citizens. 
but they were, there wasn't a theological hatred of the Jews specifically. So it was a political problem when they saw people coming in. It was a political problem, that's right. It was not, it was not a theological problem, it was a political problem. Uh, they did not want another incursion of Europeans moving into what they saw as their territory, and they saw the Zionists as a threat. So now land purchases. Uh, oh, so I was going to say, let me continue with this. Uh, so the riots in 1919, 20, 21, led to actually Winston Churchill in this case issuing a white paper. Why are they called white papers? Because they're on white paper? I have to look this up because there's all these white papers. Because um, there's going to be another one and another one in 1939. And, and in this white paper, he took back a lot of the endorsement of the Balfour Declaration and said Jewish immigration is going to be limited. And he did this in order to calm the violence, right? And then the Jews, who have very little leverage, except for whatever diplomat, you know, they don't have any state power. Remember, they don't have, uh, they just, they're good talkers, right? Um, uh, and they're passionate. Uh, you know, get to work on the British government again to ease up on those. And so you have a cycle of a series of papers, uh, policies set forth by the British government in the 20s and the 30s that continue to restrict and limit the promises of the Balfour Declaration. Jewish immigration is restricted and limited. Jewish ability to purchase land is restricted and limited. And so and what you have each time that they come up with another one of these papers, it's usually a result of uh, some violent, violent Arab rioting. Um, it is at this time that this sort of, the, that the Yeshuv, as it's known, the Jewish state, is um, creating its own um, uh, institutions of governance and create its own militia. Right? That's what you'd call it these days. It's own self-defense organization called the Haganah. The Haganah means defense. Right? And this is, so, so the Haganah actually starts in the 1920s as a self-defense organization against the Arab rights. It was, the Arab rioters, it was not actually a, um, it was self-defense. They were not actively uh, trying to be expansionist at this point because the uh, Ben-Gurion and Weizmann and the World Zionist Organization, which were controlled by the labor Zionists, felt that the best approach in a very, with a very, very poor set of playing cards was called the gradualist approach, which meant that we'll take what we can get as we can get it. We will work for better relations with the British all the time. And we'll just see what we can do, because we don't have any leverage. Right? That was the gradualist approach. I'm going to talk to you more about the extreme approach of the revisionist Zionists in a little while, because that's going to be very important to understanding Israel today. Uh, so, um, land purchases. We've talked before that, is, that the Zionist organization was looking, raising money around the world so that for the Jewish National Fund, so that it could purchase land for Jewish settlement. 
where were they able to purchase land? Um, by and large, they were able to purchase land in areas that were swampy and malarial. This story about the Jews draining the swamps, which becomes part of Zionist mythology, happens to be true. I want to talk about this a little bit, because I've been learning all about it recently for very personal reasons. It's very interesting to me. Um, malaria was an epidemic that made a, a building vibrant societies uh, very, very difficult all over the world, all over the world. Once again, we live in this, we live in a golden age of disease control, like the world has never seen before. Malaria was all over the world, and it was epidemic in the land of Israel. Uh, what had once been, many areas that had once been farmed and irrigated over the centuries of Ottoman neglect, uh, had become swampy and malarial. There were still people who lived there. They were very poor. They were infected. The local Palestinians and other villagers and farmers who lived there. Um, they didn't own their land. They were tenant farmers. The landowners lived in the cities, both in Palestine, they might have lived in Jaffa, or, uh, but also in Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, they were absentee landowners. Um, the uh, uh, Zionists, this is the land the Zionists were able to purchase. Essentially valueless land. Um, many, many of the early Zionists who moved in the first and second and third Aliyah got infected. They also got TB, tuberculosis was rife, and they would either die or go back to Europe. Right? It was it was a miserable situation that only the most idealistic young people would try to uh, keep battling. It turns out that in World War I, when General Allenby marched up from Egypt to take possession of Palestine from the Ottomans and fought the Ottomans there, uh, his, almost all of his soldiers uh, contracted malaria. And he wrote later that, or one of his lieutenants wrote later, that had, had the battle gone on two weeks longer, his men would have been too weak to continue fighting. Okay. So I'm telling you all that because uh, this is where the story of my grandfather comes in. Uh, my grandfather is, a, is, is in many ways a, a, a classic and fascinating Zionist story. His name was Israel Jacob Kligler. And he was mostly forgotten uh, by history, um, as some people are. Uh, though the reason I know so much about him now, he died in 1945, 44, 45, uh, long before I was born. Uh, but he was a specialist in infectious diseases. He was born in a shtetl in the Pale of Settlement. He came with his family to the United States in perhaps 1890, uh, in the 1890s. Um, he, was, uh, he, was, he was the one in the family slated for the yeshiva. He was a brilliant person. He abandoned, got to America, abandoned religion, 
He was staunchly secular the rest of his life. He went to NYU and City College, one of the first Jews to get a doctorate in what was called bacteriology and hygiene. And he became an expert in public health and a passionate Zionist. And in 1920, um, uh, thanks to uh, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and um, Institute and uh, money from um, uh, uh, Louis Brandeis, he went to Palestine to assess the situation in terms of malaria. And he was the head of a, a, a fact-finding mission. He stayed there and embarked on, and the, again, the reason I know this is that in recent years, two retired professors in Israel, Anton Alexander and Zalman Greenberg, in the field of, um, in, in field of entomology and infectious diseases, have decided to rehabilitate Israel Jacob Kukla's reputation, because he was completely forgotten, um, virtually. Uh, and so there's all kinds of articles. They put up this huge Wikipedia page. I learned all kinds of stuff about my grandfather that, that, I, didn't, that I didn't know before. I'm sorry, what was your grandfather's name? Israel Jacob Kligler. Israel Jacob. So I'm assuming Brandeis was a Zionist. Louis Brandeis was a, was a staunch American Zionist, yes. So why were the Rockefellers interested? The Rockefeller Institute, it w wasn't the Rockefellers per se, it was the Rockefeller Institute, which was a scientific, scientific. yeah, mm-hmm and working for the betterment of humankind in that sense. Uh, so it, my grandfather embarked on a pioneering public health initiative. The way to elimit, eliminate malaria uh, meant you had to eliminate all standing water so that the mosquitoes couldn't breed. The only way to do that, you didn't have a workforce, you're in a a patchwork of Jewish villages, poor Arab villages, Circassian, that people from the, Muslims from the Caucasus, Druze, uh, people who have really not, they, they're living in, this, in these areas, but they don't have anything to do with each other. They're just, they're all like just trying to scrape by. You have to persuade them that it's in their interest to eliminate swamps and standing water in their villages and fields. And over the next few years, he embarks on a public education campaign. They, he and his crew go to these villages. He was apparently quite tireless uh, in his work. Um, and um, yes, quite a force. He was apparent, I think he was less than five feet tall. Um, and uh, the, over the next 20 years, um, Palestine, the, the the, Palestine, the British Mandate Palestine becomes the first territorial region to completely eliminate malaria from its boundaries. So, these Greenberg and, and uh, Anton Alexander published maps in their articles to show, and this was like uh, revelatory to me, where malaria was most prevalent in Palestine. It was most prevalent along the coastal plain, the Jezreel Valley, the Beit Shan Valley, the Jordan Valley, up to the Kinaret and the Hula Valley. Now, you don't necessarily know the map of Israel, but picture a big kind of like um, shape like that, narrow. When you look, 
Huh? Like New Jersey. No, very different than Jersey. I'm no, talking. Oh no, I'm talking about I'm talking about a thin necklace oh. of of swampy lands that the Jewish National Fund was able to acquire, and where the Jews primarily settled, the Zionists. When you look at that map, it it, it of where the Jewish settlements were, they are basically following the contour of where the malarial swamps were. Do you follow what I'm saying? Furthermore, that band, which became highly fertile land once again, thanks to the efforts of both eliminating malaria and then these intense efforts, especially by the Jewish settlers, to, to create um, tillable fields from what had been swampland that they had acquired. When you look at the map of partition that is ultimately decided on, it also follows the contour of that um, geography. Does that make sense, everybody? So, so that's why reading this was fascinating to me because I learned that um, draining the swamps, which is something I grew up with, one of those Zionist stories, is actually true. But furthermore, my grandfather was singularly responsible for the eradication of malaria in um, Palestine. And it's one of those things to contemplate that he, along with so many other individuals, had they not done X or Y, yeah. it wouldn't have happened. And so that makes me reflect in a much broader way that history is never a foregone conclusion. Only with the benefit of hindsight do we see some coherent narrative. And that every story turns on the acts of individuals and on happenstance and on all kinds of things. When you think back to the American Revolution, right, it was so dicey for those rebels. There was no foregone conclusion what was going to happen in that rebellion, let alone it took them, after that, it took them many, many years to come up with a constitution they could even agree on. And it took another 80 years after that before that was resolved with the... So I, I just want to reflect that the early... From, with the hindsight... Uh, of the present, we can see this, this development towards the powerful state of Israel today. At the moment, that was not something you could predict or see. You know, I learned that one of the reasons that, that my grandfather's uh, public health innovations didn't spread around the world was because shortly thereafter, DDT was invented. And DDT was a magic bullet. You just sprayed it, and it killed all the mosquitoes. And everything else. And everything else. So uh, it's it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That uh, had DDT not been invented, had it not created all of its additional problems, and then Silent Spring got blah, 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 blah. Right. I wonder how your grandpa did it. He did it through public health measures, which were very labor-intensive. He had to persuade each village to go out and do the handwork of eliminating all standing water um, and making sure then you can't then just do that once because, you know, it, bogs are going to return. So you have to continually make sure that the malarial mosquitoes have no place to breathe. That's how we did it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Is there any evidence in your family that before his death in 45, which is only a few years later, you know, that um, 
how he felt about DDT or if he was... No, uh, I don't know. I think DDT might have been invented after that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, however, what I can say about him is that he um, then in 1925 was invited by Judah Magnus. Judah Magnus was a prominent rabbi from, reform rabbi from California who was an early Zionist. And he moved to Palestine also and created, was the first president of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which was founded in 1925. Uh, this was another bit of institution building for a nation in waiting, right? Um, and uh, my grandfather was one of the founding five faculty members of the Hebrew University. He founded the Department of Bacteriology and Hygiene. He was a, he was a prolific researcher and uh, worked on many other vaccines and public health initiatives. He, we, somewhere in our belongings is a medal from the government of Poland for his work on eliminating typhus. And uh, the reason he died young it seems, I think this is fact, is um, that uh, he was working on a typhus vaccine and researchers in that day would inject themselves yeah. as subjects. Uh, and uh, he contracted typhus and it caused him to have a heart attack. Mm. Uh, How old was he? 54. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the story is even, many of you have heard this story, the story is even more uh, buffeted by history. Um, my grandmother, Helen Kligler, had also come to this country from Hungary as a young person. She was, um, Helen, Helen liked to be high class and she actually had no trace of a European accent. She was like, and, and uh, she became a nurse with Hadassah. What was Hadassah? There's a woman named Henrietta Zold, who you should read about, from Baltimore who was a, a, one of these forces of nature, who created Hadassah, the Jewish Women's Zionist Organization, focused primarily on creating hospitals and health care in the land of Israel, and on creating what were called youth aliyah villages, creating a homes for orphans, especially after World War II, who were coming from Europe, who had no family. And Hadassah is a great organization, still is. My grandmother was one of the first cohorts of Hadassah nurses to go to Palestine. My grandparents actually met there in 1920 in Jerusalem. My father was born in 1926 um, in Jerusalem and was raised there. Uh, um, my grandparents were 36 years old at the time, which was just ancient to have your first child, right? They, I think both of them had, had, had been single a long time. Um, and uh, my dad grew up in Jerusalem from 1926 to 1939. Every six years or something like that, they weren't citizens of, great, of the British Empire, they were American citizens. And this was British territory, they had to return to the United States to reestablish their residency. In 1939, they were in New York City uh, when the war broke out. My grandfather traveled back to Palestine and, they, and he and my grandmother decided that she would stay with David in New York you know, until it blew over, uh, which meant that my dad never 
went back. He grew up in Manhattan after that, was drafted into the U.S. Army, went to college and medical school. And meanwhile, his father, who was a much better uh, researcher than parent, I, can, I know from my family history, not, he just, he was, he was, a, he was a, he was on fire. He was building the Jewish homeland, you know. He did come for one more visit when he was recuperating from his heart attack. Then he went back. And then he died of a heart attack in, before the war was over. He is buried on the Mount of Olives, which is the most ancient, the oldest Jewish cemetery in the world. It's uh, got, it's got cave, burial caves and monuments dating back to the Second Temple period. It's over 2,000 years old, probably much more. <coughs> when my parents went to Israel for their honeymoon in, in 1950, um, they were unable to visit the cemetery because during the War of Independence, uh, Israel's War of Independence, Jordanian forces held the Mount of Olives and the old city of Jerusalem. That was called East Jerusalem. And the Jewish forces, the Israeli forces, captured West Jerusalem. So he couldn't visit his father's grave. The Jordanians uh, destroyed the cemetery. They used the gravestones for construction purposes. And uh, it was only in 1968, after the Six-Day War, uh, when my parents, who had been, my mom was an incredibly organized person. They didn't have a lot of money, but she'd been like, had a special bank account where every return, every coupon, every, uh, and they took us to Israel in the summer of 1968 when I was 12. And I remember going up to the cemetery with my dad, and the cemetery was a ruin, and uh, they couldn't locate his grandfather's grave. Today, there's a monument that stands in the roughly in the area where he was buried that names uh, 40-some graves that, of whom no trace could be located, and his name is one of them. We also went on that trip over to Mount Scopus, where the Hebrew University had been located, which, though what had remained in Israeli hands after the war, was an isolated little island of territory, and only an occasional convoy could go up there while it was, the surrounding area was held by Jordan. So no one had been there in uh, 19 years either, in 20 years either. I'm telling you all that. Oh, the Mount of Olives, if you haven't been there, commands the most incredible view of Jerusalem. And I'm telling you all that, uh, I think both, it's where my life and this story intersect. Right? My brother, my older brother, after he finished graduate school 40 years ago, he and Roberta moved to Israel. They raised their family there. And in the, as I was mentioning, how, how our lives, not just history, but our lives, think about our lives, how they, yeah. how did we get here? It's like, you turned left instead of you turned right. You met somebody. Uh, you, you wound up there. It's like, and now it's, we, it's amazing when you think about how, how, we, how little we actually are in control of our destiny in that regard. And there but for a what, 
I was born here right. and not there. And I mention that because, you know, it's why this topic is of such profound personal interest mm -hmm. to me. Um, so, okay, so I wanted to give you that little, little, little scenario about my, my grandfather. It's kind of a remarkable story. Did you meet him? Did you know him? No, he died 10 years before I was born and only lived as a myth in my family. Because your father didn't have any much memory of him, did he? Well, my father had memory of him, but he was a very remote guy who uh, was very, was, was n it's, not a, it's not a happy family story. Uh, it turns out that he was a driven, brilliant man, and his colleagues didn't like him either. Uh, his students, his graduate students didn't, he was, he was a taskmaster, but he had a mission. Did you know your grandmother? Yes, I knew my grandmother. She wasn't uh, very warm either. Um, uh, my, grand, my dad had a rough time. Um, so, uh, but what I wanted to say about that is that in this research that Anton Alexander and Zalman Greenberg are doing, and if you want to read all about my grandfather, it's on Wikipedia now. It's a kind of amazing. Mm. Stuff I just didn't know. It's so interesting. Um, thanks to these two retired professors, is that um, at the Hebrew University in the 1930s, there was an effort to oust him from the faculty. This is all from studying all the minutes of faculty meetings and stuff. And his ally was Judah Magnus, the, the president. Uh, but two of the people who, I've told you this before, some of you, two of the people who uh, signed the uh, petition by the faculty to have him removed were Martin Buber and Albert Einstein. <laughs> so that is, that is my claim to... Uh... So he might not have been a very likable man. I... You're measured by your enemies. Oh, boy. Isn't that something? Okay. It is. It's just an amazing story. I, I get a big kick out of it. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> You're welcome. <clears throat> and... Uh, um, okay, all of that. Now, think about now, the, the swamps have been drained. Malaria is being eradicated in this territory. Well, one of the things, and the, uh, the, both the quality of life and the uh, standard of living are rising. This is something that needs to be acknowledged. Many Arabs from surrounding areas start moving into British Mandate Palestine. Yeah. So there's both an indigenous Palestinian population that exists, but there's also a huge influx of workers and people who are going where the jobs are good. You follow what I'm saying, everybody? So again, when you study, say, the history of Palestinian nationalism, and like all nationalisms, they rest on myth as much as, and I say myth not as false, per se, but as you need a myth. Yeah. That you've been here for all these times and we're all, that's true of some of the people who identify as Palestinian, but many of the people who now identify as Palestinians arrived during this period. Just as Jews were coming from Europe, more Arabs were coming from. Mm. I just wanted to mention that. Um, there's an, there's, an, there's an, a, an increasing urbanization in Syria, thanks to, ironically, 
the success of the Zionists. Right? right? So, so that was again, that's what's fun about history as opposed to like yeah. polemics. Like it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say that that's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, the fact that there was an urban, thriving community that attracted Arabs to it um, who, who maybe wanted to be urbanized. Urbanized or simply get a better paying job. Right. Or be somewhere where they weren't going to get sick. Or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people yeah. move. And, uh, uh, and so there were many. So the, both the Jewish population and the Arab population were rapidly expanding during the British Mandate period. Yeah. And not just from birth rates. Right. That's all I wanted to say. Yes. So during the same period, the Jews that lived in places like Cairo and Damascus and those <clears throat> more cosmopolitan mm-hmm. cities were doing well and not really... Well, now we have to distinguish between the Jews of Europe, where Zionism was an active force, and the Jews of Arab countries, whether they're living in Beirut or Damascus or Cairo or Algiers or Fez or, you know, all the places where Arab-speaking Jews lived. Uh, They were not... And a very active part of the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement was a distinctly European event. Yeah, because they lived okay. They, they weren't as motivated? Or? They were not under the extreme... The, the, Zion, the, the heart of Zionism was the Russian Empire. And the Jews in the Russian Empire were desperate. Remember, they were pouring out of there to the United States to Western Europe, and they were, they were, the oppression was bitter and deadly. Uh, and uh, uh, the Jews who lived in North Africa, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, they had been in those communities for many centuries in uh, Persia in, and were not part, actively part of this Zionist enterprise. Yeah. It is not until after the founding of the State of Israel, that the Jews of Arab-speaking countries, and also Persia, uh, Iran, uh, comes into play. Um, I think that's a good digression to take right here. So picture the world after World War II. The British Empire is contracting rapidly. Think about the Indian subcontinent. Remember what's going on there? There's, Gandhi has been leading this movement for decades, just like, just like Jews in the uh, Palestinian mandate and uh, you know, Arabs in other countries against the British Empire for their own national uh, sovereignty. But India is also riven by civil war between Muslims and Hindus, right? Hindu nationalists and Muslim nationalists, Gandhi had a vision which did not come to pass, right? He was assassinated. Um, And during that time, as the British leave, millions of Muslims flee into what becomes known as Pakistan, West and East, remember East Pakistan is now Bangladesh. Millions of Hindus flee Muslim controlled areas 
for India. And there's a massive transfer of populations going on. And not only there, but in many places around as national movements declare independence. Now, there was a substantial Muslim minority that stayed in India, just like there's a substantial Arab minority that stays in this tiny sliver that becomes the land of Israel. But these trends are not unique to what's going on in Palestine. There's a war. During the war, people get flee, they get kicked out, they move, they, and then when the war is, is over, new realities are on the ground. Right? That happened in Israel-Palestine, it happened in India-Pakistan, it happened in many other places. As, especially as the British got out, just said, we, we're out of here. Right? They couldn't manage these conflicts anymore, and their day had passed. Uh, I'm mentioning that also for historical context. So what happens after the war, after Israel declares independence, is that rising Arab resentment and nationalism all over the Arab world start to make life impossible for the Jewish minorities that have been living in those countries for centuries. Not only centuries. The Jewish community of Iraq and Iran can date themselves literally 2,600 years from the Babylonian exile in the first period of the first temple. These are ancient communities. These Jews speak Arabic. The more educated among them also speak French or English, especially. Uh, and so it starts becoming less and less tenable for these communities to continue to exist in places they've lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Close to a million Jews from Arab-speaking countries leave during the next 15 years. Um, and those who can afford it go to England, come to uh, Great Neck, you know, Beverly Hills, uh, Paris. Many of them were Francophiles, right, because of, you know, um, uh, France's control of Algeria and Tunisia. Yeah? Pardon me? Oh, yes, and the French, the, there was, the, the French Jews had, uh, the French-speaking Jews had a whole organization called the Alliance Israelite. That's right. The, um, and uh, those who can't afford anywhere else, this brand new state of Israel offers a haven, right? And um, uh, uh, in its first decade, Israel doubled its population with new immigrants. Not only these new immigrants, uh, these were not European Jews. They were from a different culture. They're called Mizrahi, Sephardic. But I think Arab is a good uh, description uh, of them. Uh, and, uh, and again, with the hindsight of history, we'll talk about this more in a future class, with the hindsight of history, these new immigrants were not treated well by the Israeli government and power establishment. Uh, and that came to bite that establishment in the butt um, 20, 30 years later as, uh, as a generation of North African and, and other Arab-speaking immigrants came of age. We'll talk about that. Uh, yes? There was a very, I think it was popular for 
book called The Man in the White Shark Skin Suit. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. The like Man the in the White... And that's that period, and they were... They were he was an Egyptian right. Jew. Well, they were right. leaving from Egypt, but they originally came from Syria. Anyway, and they had to make the decision uh, where to go to Israel or to... To the U.S. when when they had to leave, it was from NASA was telling them, you know, go, everybody go, get out of here, Just go. That's he didn't right. do anything to them, but he said, go, get out of here. And, and so they were dickering on what to do. And the interesting thing I found fascinating in that book is they had a couple, one or two sons, who were of age that they knew if they went to Israel, would wind up in fight in, in the army. There was terrible things going on. Yeah. So they held out. I think it was Hyas or some organizations were helping the, mm-hmm. and they held out for a long time uh, in some sort of detention in Europe. So that right, they in could France. Get to the US. They got to the US. They would, they would get the choice, but for US you had to wait. The author Israel, of Israel you could go now. Right. And they, Israel you they could they go now. They were afraid to go to Israel. Yeah. They um, <clears throat> the author of that book, uh, Lulu um, I'm forgetting her name, yeah. actually came to synagogue one day because they were weekending up here mm. and she came to services and I talked to her all about her book. They moved to right near where I lived in Brooklyn. Yeah. In, in, in Bensonhurst. Okay. So, so the, the population transfers that began after the war continued for another 15 years. And yes. So, so we were chatting about the, what's the, the reason that the Jewish minority have been thousands of years in little whether it was Iran, Iraq, wherever the reason it became inhospitable for them directly relates to the fact that Israel was declared in 1948? Yes. Yes. Uh, the rising resentment and rising Arab nationalism said, well, you know, for, because remember, in the, in the going back to the 7th, 8th century, um, there's the Islam there's, a, there's, an, there's, there's an area of the world called Dar al-Islam, which includes Jerusalem mm-hmm. and its holy places. To the fact that there was a, a Jewish nation now established on what should be Arab and Islamic land was a huge insult and affront, blasphemous, horrible. That the reason Israel is such an exciting place is because that same Jerusalem is considered by Christianity to be its territory because Jesus walked there. And the Crusades, uh, it goes way back to the first crusade, the battle over who controls the Holy Land. Uh, So yes, with the Jews and especially in the eyes of many Arabs with a European incursion into their territory, they didn't distinguish necessarily between the it was a double whammy. It was both the Jews, so Jews get out, but it was also a, a, a colonialist um, incursion as well, because the Arabs had been thoroughly humiliated in the in the by the by the West in the First World War. Um, yes. There's, Hold there's, on one second, Esther. Yes, sir. Just one second, I'm Jane. Sorry. What a collection. The passion of Jerusalem, the capital of the land of three great faiths, is still the holy city for Christian, Muslim, and Jew. And it has wonderful photos and something about each of these faiths. So wonderful. You Thank you. Esther? There, there is another book um, about a 
Jewish family uh, community living in Fez and living living as the Arabs lived. I mean, there was no difference except they kept. They were Jewish. Yeah, they were Jewish. Yeah, they were Jewish, but the, but their life was very meager, and um, and full of superstition and. Uh, I mean, they were, for all intents, Arabs, as their neighbors were. Yes. And then what happens is that Israel is declared a state, and their neighbors want them out. Right. And they come to Israel, Right. and they have no idea about how to use a toilet, about right. how to go into the elevator. They have no idea. Right. And this was the huge problem that faced Israel, how to integrate. How do you integrate? If your population is 800,000 and you've just absorbed 800,000 new people who are Jewish but don't share your culture and in many cases have not even been modernized. On the other hand, there were also among them more uh, urbanized and educated Jews for whom coming to Israel, they were leaving an incredibly beautiful and cultured life. So it was an incredible hodgepodge. Furthermore, when, you know, as people rush to judgment to blame the Ashkenazim for their racism and their lack of understanding, uh, the, the Ashkenazim being the, the Zionists who control this new state, you have to keep in mind that they, this new state had no money, its borders were not secured. From 1949, after the armistice was declared, there was a low-level, continuous war of especially from Egypt and Jordan infiltrating uh, Israel and killing people, just killing, killing, killing. It was it was tense and dicey. Furthermore, Israel had no money. So what were they going to do? So these immigrants are pouring in, and Ben Gurion and the government have a plan. They need to secure their borders, so they create border towns, and they ship the new immigrants, out to these border towns. They're living in tents, in stockades at the beginning. It's like, it's intense, it's terrible. It, it, I'm not saying it's not terrible for these people who've been dislocated and now find themselves literally in the middle of nowhere host, in hostile territory. But it's not like this was a plan to, de- to denigrate and degrade these people by the government, if you follow what I'm saying. This is a government trying to establish a state out of nothing surrounded by hostile forces and porous boundaries. Do you follow what I'm saying? Again, only with hindsight can we self-righteously kind of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, pontificate about how they should have done it. Okay? And yes, in, because of all the things that they did uh, and that happened, eventually, 25 years later, in 1977, that labor government was voted out primarily by the children (laughs) of those people. You follow what I'm saying, everybody? And so everything has a cost. But it's, it's, um, and furthermore, there was, there's so much irony in all this. I won't go, I won't go to the furthermore right now uh, because I'll get to it in a minute. Yeah. I was just wondering if you could finish your point that you started about the humiliation of the Arabs at the end of the First World War. You started to... Uh, r- r- right. Um, I, uh, I don't mean to interrupt your train. Well, it's just that it wasn't the beginning of Arab humiliation. This had been going on for centuries. 
that these proud people, this proud, who, had, who understood themselves as being like, you know, the progenitors of the, the, the Islam, it comes from Arab, uh, from, from the Arab people. The Arab, and there was a golden age that they had in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. And now they're like, they're nothing. Yeah. They've been controlled by the Ottomans for 500 years. They have their own nationalist aspirations, and now the British and the French come in and just like, you know, impose their own uh, flunkies on them as, as kings and leaders, and basically work with them to secure the oil riches of the Middle East. It's like the Arabs are humiliated. Um, and if you know anything about Arab culture, um, uh, honor is absolutely central. Humiliation is absolutely horrible in Arab culture. So it, it, that's what I'm talking about from the little I know about it. Sure. Okay. Yes. Well, it might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The, the whole right or return thing, I know I'm jumping ahead, you're probably not, you're not ready to go there, but has any refugee, including these Jewish refugees that you're referring to, that were kicked out of there? lands of, with people that for 2,000 years. Has any refugee ever had literally a right of return where they can go back now to this place in Iran and say, well, I'm back and I'd like to have... Oh, that's a fascinating back. question. And you, to, understand, to understand this, you, you have to understand that Zionism is a unique nationalist experiment where part of its founding principle is the ingathering of the exiles. All other national movements happen on their land. So if there is a diaspora community of that people, yes, they can come back once the nation is established. But it was never attempted ex nihilo, out of nothing, which is what Zionism was doing, which was trying to create a national homeland literally out of nothing, where everyone had to be ingathered even to make it happen. So, it's, it, so, so the right of return is sort of in the DNA of the Zionist idea mm -hmm. that we are in gathering our exiles. I'm just referring generally to the, so these imaginary nation states are created across borders that made right. sense tribally or whatnot. Right. And people were exiled, including the Jewish people from Iran and Iraq when they didn't like the establishment of Israel. Have uh, any of these people been able to go back to their country that they were Scared out of, beaten out Speaking about Arab nations, uh, I would say that nationalism in the European, the exported European nationalism doesn't really take root in that part of the world in a way that we can talk about it as a kind of the organizing principle of, of the Arab nation. But in Europe, think about it, it's, think about the Sudetenland. Think about the Germans who lived in Czech territory that Hitler wanted to repatriate. Um, uh, mm -hmm. There have been national groups that want to repatriate their um, members, but it's not the same because they already have a homeland. And the, their, their diaspora uh, can come and go as they please. Uh, the right of return was a specifically Zionist idea. 
in order to um, redress the problems of anti-Semitism. Remember, Zionism was designed to be a solution to the Jewish problem. We've talked about that. But is he talking about, are you talking about the right of return of the Arabs? Exactly. Oh, oh. Yeah, I'm talking about the right of return of the Arabs. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so this is where the irony of history comes in. And we're not going to talk about it more today. Palestinian nationalism is made in the image of Zionist nationalism. The Palestinian, Palestinian national movement, which sees itself as refugees and exiles, is unique in that it comes into its own as a response to Zionism. So the two of them are... It, so we'll have to talk about that in a future class. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, again, the word for me is irony in the deepest, deepest sense uh, that Palestinian nationalism makes itself in the image of its uh, uh, um, uh, oppressors and therefore adopts the specific ideology of Zionism as a scattered people who need to have the right of return to their homeland. And that is part of the unique wrestle that is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, different than anything else I've seen. Except what's similar is that the British mandate is carved up into an Arab and a Jewish bloc, right? Yes, but there is no unified Palestinian leadership at that time. The Palestinian liberation movement as we know it comes into focus only after Israel becomes a state. One of the reasons the Palestinians and the Arabs lose that war is that they have no unified leadership, they have no central command, they have none of the shadow government that the Zionists have created over the last 50 years. And they are warring militias, clans. In the 1936 to 39 riots, uh, which were huge and violent and terrible, at, according to what I've been reading, more Palestinian Arabs killed Palestinian Arabs in their own civil conflicts than actually killed Jewish uh, settlers. So one of the problems the Palestinian Arabs had is that they were not a nation in waiting at the time of uh, uh, the War of Independence. They, they had no unified body in, which could make decisions. They didn't have a government in waiting. And so, when, you know, that was one of, that was a great disadvantage to them. Palestinian nationalism as we know it only comes into focus in the late 50s as uh, they remake, as, as they kind of invent themselves. Remember, all nationalisms are invented. Therefore, you can't have one nationalism that is somehow uniquely uh, <coughs> untrue. <laughs> They're all invented, okay? So you can't say Palestinians don't exist, right? Even though many people want to say that. Any group that defines itself as a national group and creates, the, creates that in the way we organize ourselves is a national group. The Palestinian national movement, as we understand it, grew up in response to having lost to the, to, to the state of Israel. And... Um, so many of their own presumptions about themselves and how they see themselves are in response to how they saw um, uh, the Israelis define themselves. Um, and uh, that is, as I said, a profound irony for me. Um, uh, was there a hand? 
Yes. I was going to say, so you might say Yasser Arafat was modeling himself on Theodore Herzl. Well, at least he... <laughs> yeah, it's a stretch. Uh, um, what I'm saying is that he had the same... a, 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 a national story of displacement and victimization and the need to return to your ancestral land becomes the DNA of the Palestinian national movement, which is exactly what the ideology of the Zionist, the, the national story of the Zionist movement was. And, uh, um, and that includes calling the Israelis Nazis. All of it. Yeah. All of it. All of it. Okay. So now, yes. Uh, I missed the first session, but pre Herzl, um, Benny Morris's Righteous Victims. Have, have you? I did not read Benny Morris's Righteous Victims. Well, it's like a thousand page scholarly tome, but. I'm definitely not going to read it. I found it fascinating. I know, I just don't. Maybe when I retire. Uh, but in short, and I just wonder if you have a perspective on this. Um, he says there are no good guys. Uh, no good guys. No good guys. That, that, that among the Jews, and I'm going back to the 1850s and 1860. You got one warlord and one chieftain after another on both sides, trying to stab their own people in the back, trying to stab the other guys in the back. And then he says, pre Herzl, it was set up to be a miserable conflict. That there were there were no heroes. And I, I wonder if you covered any of that. And in, 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 I did. I, I did. I can't talk about it now. That's great. Um, I do want to say, though, that another aspect of my grandfather's <coughs> life in, uh, in the issue of in, Jewish, in British Man in Palestine was that he was a part of a Jewish intellect, pretty much a bunch of Jewish intellectuals, Zionist intellectuals, who formed, Martin Buber was part of this, Judah Magnus was part of this, something called the Binational State Movement. And it was their feeling that uh, why can't we have a binational state here in the land of British Mandate Palestine? One of the reasons the binational state movement never went anywhere, I mean nowhere, mm -hmm. is because there was, first of all, no unified Palestinian leadership to talk with about it, right? So it wasn't like there was, here, we are this body representing the Zionist movement, talking with and negotiating with this body that represents the Palestinians. It didn't exist. Furthermore, the leader, the, the, the most prominent leader of, of the um, uh, Palestinian community, Haj Amin al-Husseini, was essentially a Nazi sympathizer. And so there was nobody to talk to. Um, it's, again, uh, they were Americans by and large and I, very idealistic and uh, uh, that was, that was one ineffectual thrust at that time. So, but I want to talk now. Yeah, we'll do this for a half hour, could be good. Um, so, there are many streams of Zionist thought, right? There were those like my grandfather who was part of this binational state movement. You could say on the, the extreme left of the spectrum. I don't know if left is, is the right way to say it, but uh, that, that, who thought that coexistence could be possible. Um, there were the labor Zionists who wanted to build a nation that was a Jewish nation, 
but that would be a Jewish nation that would also be an opportunity to build an ideal society. Right? We've talked plenty about that. Their aspiration was not just to create a Jewish national homeland, but to create a homeland that would be essentially a social democratic um, uh, paradise. Yes, a social democratic paradise. When you read the Israeli Declaration of Independence, which was, I think we'll look at it next time, which was drafted by the labor Zionists who had virtually complete hegemony in the early government, it is that kind of vision. I'll read you one paragraph. Um, the state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, and it will be faithful to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Okay, that's the Israeli Declaration of Independence. It's still theoretically in force, right? And uh, uh, many aspects of it are. But in any event, this was, a, this was the labor Zionist vision, right? was to create a place where the Jews could live as a free people in our own land and create a society based on <coughs> uh, freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. Incredible, huh? Meanwhile, and they were taking this very incremental approach towards nation building, based on Ben-Gurion and Weizmann's sense that you, you, you take what you can get, you build a little here, you build a little there, outcomes unknown. The idea that there'd actually be a Jewish national state as opposed to a homeland didn't really start to become imaginable until the 1930s. They weren't talking about it before then. Uh, so there are other Zionist factions, other nationalist factions. So let's think about nationalism. It basically, it basically uh, has two poles. On the one is that a nation exists in order to stand for something, for a, a vision of, um, of social redemption, of justice, of peace. We're not just here to create a, a safe place for us. We're here to create <coughs> a city on a hill and a vision of, to envision a society as it could be. That's the most idealistic form of nation state, right? Uh, um, that we're here, not to, our existence isn't sufficient. We also have to be part of this idea of a better world. Um, and uh, every nation, the other extreme is that the nation is an end in itself. Right? Our existence, the state is um, our goal. The existence of the state and our uh, control of the power of statecraft and of, of the mechanisms of state is what we're after. And um, all these other things, tolerance, justice, peace, nothing to do with it, right? 
That's fascism, right? Fascism is nationalism as an end in itself, where you worship the state, where that is the goal, as opposed to the, the other extreme. Every nation has both those poles in it, right? And every, every nation is um, oscillating, constantly battling over the soul of the nation. What are we here? What do we stand for? What are we here for? This is going on in our country today. It's going on all over the world. Fascism is ascendant, right? A Trump can invite a Viktor Orban from Hungary, who is a classic right-wing ultranationalist, uh, and they can they can enjoy each other's company. Um, uh, and um, the the same battle continues to go on in the soul of Israel, right? As with every other nation state. So, in the 1920s. Uh, a Zionist leader from Odessa, who has spent much time in European capitals, speaks many languages, is brilliant. His name is Vladimir Jabotinsky. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Vladimir Jabotinsky uh, creates a new branch of Zionism called Revisionist Zionism. It's called Revisionist Zionism because he want, he's, wants to revise what Zionism stand for. He's an intense nationalist. He's anti-communist and anti-socialist. He thinks labor, and he lumps them all together. He, he believes that um, uh, power and the exercise of power lead to human rights and not the other way around. His, uh, so I'm going to pass around some of, and his descendants his ideological descendants run the state of Israel today. That's right. Okay? Um, the labor Zionists uh, have, their power base has faded. Jabotinsky, who was an outlier, a nuisance, a, a, a crank in many ways, uh, to the, in the 1930s, eventually, uh, is, uh, um, becomes ascendant. Jabotinsky's heir, when he died in 1940, who took over the revisionist Zionist movement was Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin's colleague uh, was Benjamin Netanyahu's father, uh, who just died recently at the age of 101. Um, he taught at Harvard. He taught at Harvard. Well, no, he taught at um, Penn, because um, uh, that's why Netanyahu spent his teenage years in Philadelphia. Um, which is why, why he speaks such good English. Um, um, so Benjamin Netanyahu is a, is a prince of the revisionist Zionist movement. So let's read some of uh, Jabotinsky's thinking so we get an idea of what we're talking about here. Um, just send these around that way. I'll go this way. <clears throat>
Okay, this is excerpted from this book, which again, I really recommend, because it's not a thousand pages, called The Making of Modern Zionism, Intellectual Origins of the Jewish State. I'm sure it's, I trust it's still in print. Um, so let's look at the first one where it says, how much Jabotinsky shared this critique. <coughs> how much Jabotinsky shared this critique of the weaknesses of liberalism, the we liberalism being this idea that societies can, uh, are, are building a better, brighter future for all humanity, right? Can be seen from a very early essay called Man is a Wolf to Man, written in 1910, in which he declares liberalism dead and irrelevant for the modern age. Here, Jabotinsky maintains that there is no foundation for the classical liberal humanistic view according to which, quote, anyone who has himself suffered for a long time under the yoke of a stronger one will not oppress those weaker than he. Jabotinsky mentions the Polish population of Galicia then under Austrian rule, which oppresses the Ukrainian minority while at the same time itself being oppressed by the German-speaking Austrians, quote, sometimes we base too many rosy hopes on the fallacy that a certain people has itself suffered much and will therefore feel the agony of another people and understand it and its conscience will not allow it to inflict on the weaker people what had been earlier inflicted on it. But in reality, it appears that these are mere petty phrases. Only the Bible says, thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, seeing you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Contemporary morality has no place for such childish humanism, end quote. Okay. Yes. All these ideas, revisionist ideas, the labor socialist ideas, they're swimming in the European, you know, all the European ideas that occurred at the time, and they're adopting them and transforming them for their own version right. of Zionism. Right. These are the different poles of na remember nationalism is is the emerging paradigm of Europe. By the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, um, uh, so depending on your um, ideology, your temperament, where you live, your, uh, your, who you are, you're going to adopt a different version of nationalism. They're all already there. But here's the basic one, which he was a profoundly secular individual. And uh, that's why he could say only the Bible says, but we know that's not the way things really are. Right? So this whole idea of Judaism that you should not oppress the stranger for you are strange. In other words, this whole aspirational idea of what humanity can be. Mm -hmm. right? this, whole, this, this very concept that we can, we can be better, he rejects out of hand. Mm -hmm. And when you observe the 20th century, that's the battle that we see going on constantly. As soon as you get the power, you're going to be a... As soon as you get the power, so therefore, get the power. Um, childish humanism. I'll keep reading. It was a wise philosopher who said, man is a wolf to man. Worse than the wolf man is man to man. And this will not change for many days to come. We will not change this through political reforms, nor through culture, or even bitter experience will not change it. Stupid is the person who believes in his neighbor. Good and loving as the neighbor may be, stupid is the person who relies on justice. Justice exists only for those whose fists and stubbornness 
make it possible for them to realize it. When I am criticized for my insistence on apartness, on not believing in anyone, and on other matters which are difficult for delicate persons to accept, I sometimes want to answer, I am guilty. Do not believe anyone. Be always on guard. Carry your stick always with you. This is the only way of surviving in this wolfish battle of all against all. Okay? You can't, I can't entirely disagree with him when it comes to international relations. Right? The question is, how far are you going to go? In a world that, that operates this way, are you going to buy in, go in a whole hog? Or are you going to keep a vision? Not exactly Lincoln-esque. No. No, it's fascism. That's what it is. Now, it's not fascism uh, where he has no interest. He wants to create a Jewish state. He's very clear, Jabotinsky, that everyone who's in this state who isn't Jewish will have individual rights. And he's not interested. He's, uh, but uh, So he's not like a... What's, you can be a fascist without being um, uh, uh, committing genocide, right? Uh, but for him, the Jewish national homeland will be based on our ability to secure it with strength and might, period. Um, and this is revisionist Zionism. And it, it, he loved this stuff. He loved Mussolini. He thought the brown shirts, the, the, the Italians marching in lockstep... So he created a youth movement called Beitar. Uh, Beitar was a sort of paramilitary. <coughs> Here I said, the idea of Beitar. Beitar is structured around the principle of discipline. Its aim is to turn Beitar into such a world organism that would be able, at a command from the center, to carry out at the same moment, through the score of its limbs, the same action in every city and every state. The opponents of Beitar maintain that this does not accord with the dignity of free men, and it entails becoming a machine. I suggest not to be ashamed and respond with pride, yes, a machine, because it is the highest achievement of a multitude of free human beings to be able to act together with the absolute precision of a machine. This is the rising tide of Nazism, right? Right. Uh, the goose-stepping and the unison and the... He admires it. Why does he admire it? It works. <laughs> it works if you have no childish morality, no old-fashioned morality. It works. But until you've secured your power, all of your highfalutin talk is worthless. And that's Jabotinsky. Make sense, everybody? Well, that's why I'm teaching this class. You have to know about this about the, we'll, we won't have time to talk about, to take it up into the present today. We're going to do that in the next couple of classes. But if you want to know the history of Zionism, this is part of the history of Zionism. These guys were sidelined for the first 40 years of the state. Um, and then through a whole combination of factors, they moved into power. What? With well, with Bacon, but Bacon was a profoundly moral man. Uh, it's, it's really even, Bacon was the first. Bacon was like, okay, so let's talk about, I'm sorry, Jane, you were saying? I was going to say the drive for an exclusively, an exclusively Jewish 
those principles that you read in the, in the Declaration of Independence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the battle over what a Zionist is today uh, uh, reflects that, you know, I am a beleaguered uh, um, uh, this kind of Zionist, right? Uh, but, but the folks that I, the, the folks like me find that if, that the government of Israel is much more in this direction. So, for example, Jabotinsky is very clearly a European racist, right? He writes a lot, and I didn't include this in, um, in this handout, he writes a lot, and he was prolific and a genius. Yeah. He writes a lot about um, that basically the European, um, the Europeans are superior. Right. And that the Jewish race is superior. And, uh, oh, okay, well, there were some more explicit ones than even this one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in the 30s, he creates his own paramilitary organization. Remember, there is no Jewish uh, government. There are factions. They each have their own militia, right? That's what you call them. The Haganah, and the, right. then the revisionist organization was called the Irgun. The most extreme, even beyond Jabotinsky, was a group called the Stern Gang. Oh, yeah. They felt, the Irgun and the Stern Gang felt, that, the, that they wanted a nation now, that the only way to get it was to make life so miserable for the British, that the British would leave. And they were a classic terrorist organization. They didn't attack just military targets. They uh, did what they could to disrupt the British rule and, of course, defend themselves against uh, Arab uh, militias, who also were uh, you know, attacking the Jews and, at times, attacking the British mandate. Um, it, was, it was a complete mess, everybody. Yeah. So, uh, two things. Esther, you first. So would you say that Steve Miller, <clears throat> who is the um, advisor to Trump... Stephen Miller? Yeah. Would you oh. say that he is a... No. Oh, oh, uh, is he a fascist? Is yes. he an intolerant, yes. racist yes. asshole? Yes. yes. But, That's what I'm but saying. Not in, the lineage, not in the lineage of revisionist Zionism. He's a pure American product, that okay. guy. Um, okay. So, but yeah, we know the type. Yeah. They're, they're, they're in the White House. Yeah, they're in the White House. <laughs> right? right? So we know this. That's right. Jane? So I've read, I don't have these specifics now, but uh, the Stern Gang and... Um, what is the other group? The Irgun. The Irgun. Had dealings in um, different places like Iran, Iraq, etc., to um, make sure that the Jews would be expelled so that they could populate the state of Israel. Uh huh. I'm sure they made those efforts. Um, and again, if the, the Jewish establishment, they called the Yeshuv, in Israel that Ben-Gurion was running had very limited influence. Remember how they had come beg hat in hand to the United States for used weapons? Right? This is not a powerful group, everybody. The Stern Gang and the Irgun, all the more so, had these ideas. They couldn't necessarily manifest them. Right? I just want to say, this was not some powerhouse. These were all people scrambling for any advantage they could get. Again, I want us to 
to make a distinction between people fighting for their survival with no idea what's going to happen. Remember, with the Nazi genocide looming and uh, the desperate measures people would take versus our perspective from uh, a much more secure uh, and incredibly powerful state of Israel today. So it's just important to remember that. However, I want you, I do want you to hear these ideological underpinnings because it meant that moral behavior was not a factor in statecraft. That's what there is to say. And that's the eternal question. Should statecraft include moral considerations? Um, and uh, obviously, it's a very, very, very gray area. But still, I want the governments I support to manifest that. That's who I vote for. I have a vision. <coughs> I have a dream you know, that, that a better society is possible, and I want my government to manifest it. There are others who say no especially in foreign relations. No. Statecraft is all about power, no moral considerations whatsoever. Mm. And that's a battle we've seen for decades. Yes and yes. I thought they um, attributed some of the British getting out of Palestine to the terrorists. That's the thing. With the hindsight of history, the Stern Gang and the Irgun might have been partly responsible for getting the British out. Definitely. So the creation of the State of Israel was kind of an unpredictable dance between the gradualists and the extremists who said, we want a state now uh, and we're going to get it. Um, and so, uh, yes, David. I think this is what you were talking about at one point when you said that this is the battle inherent in the organizing principle of the nation state. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Um, and it, we're all morally compromised, inevitably. Um, many have written about how, you know, one of the reasons maybe the Jewish moral vision was so clear was because it was developed and uh, elucidated on and when we had no state power, no political power, and no power to protect. So that made us uh, more, put us in more of a position to become a people who spends all the time thinking about ethics. There have been many books written, and some good ones, about Jews and power, about can, can Jewish ethics uh, become truly manifest in, a, in, in an area where we have state power? Can it happen? Jabotinsky said, no way. However, in my experience of being in Israel and talking to people there, there are significant both official and unofficial efforts to infuse Israeli society with the ethics of Judaism. It's not all or nothing. And it's just all gray. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, uh, so um, Jabotinsky in the 30s breaks from the World Zionist Organization and through the 30s and 40s, uh, their paramilitary arm, the Irgun, their, their militia, is, is, is committing what we would now call terrorist activities, what others, what they would call freedom fighting activities, right? Who's a terrorist? Again, is a when you have state power, uh, is that, is it, okay, good stuff. Um, so what happens 
as uh, after in 1948, when the state is actually declared, is that uh, a power struggle takes place, and um, Ben Gurion has agreed as the head of this brand new government to um, uh, on a on a on a ceasefire, and during which no arms would be transferred. Meanwhile, uh, Bacon and the uh, Irgun have filled the ship with armaments, the Altalena, that they are trying to bring in to Jaffa port, to Tel Aviv. And Ben-Gurion made the decision at that point to sink that ship. The very famous and important story, which consolidated his hold on the government. Right? No, I'm the, we're the government, and we decide what military actions we take. You don't decide anymore. What year is that? 48. Then was when there the any loss of life? There was loss of life in the Altalena incident. Yes. It's famous. What, what was the name of the Altalena. A-L-T-A-L-E-N-A. You can look it up. My cousin, Sipporah Kessel, who died a few years ago, was like Menachem Begin's secretary at that time. And she was... Oh boy, don't start talking politics. Don't start talking about Ben-Gurion with uh, Tipora, I'll tell you. What, so, what were they bringing the guns, guns. For? What was that it was a, the, 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 the War of Independence was active. There was a temporary ceasefire. Ben-Gurion felt it was in his interest, his, his, this new nation's interest, to take the ceasefire in order to consolidate their military positions and all, all sorts of stuff like that. The Irgun was not following Begin's orders. So they were not going to abide by the ceasefire and instead bring the armaments in. For their own men, to their own group. Right. And they were going to continue. Continue. And Ben-Gurion, as the head of this new state, had to make a decision. And Ben-Gurion had no trouble being the tough guy. And uh, he, he sunk this ship. I, I, was just, I just want to make sure they weren't donating those guns to Ben-Gurion's military. Department. No, but that wasn't the point. No, but that, they were going to use them. In their... Yes, but uh, at that, it was after that that the Irgun dissolved. And beca- because in 1948, the Haganah, when Israel declared independence, the Haganah immediately became the Israel Defense Forces. So from a state in waiting, a shadow state with a... Uh, a, a defense organization, a militia, as soon as you declare nationhood, your militia becomes your army. That's one of the prerogatives of being a nation, right? And it's the difference between state-sponsored terrorism and non-state-sponsored terrorism. It's just, you know, we have the army now. Depends how you use it. So, um, so the Israeli defense forces are now the Israeli army, and the Irgun hasn't agreed to that yet. And Ben-Gurion has to show who's boss. After the... Um, is this interesting, everybody? Yes. Good, because uh, covering a lot of ground. Um, a- after this incident, the Irgun dissolved and became folded into the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, and Menachem Begin became a member of the Knesset. He was a member, the Irgun, the, the revisionists, became the Cherut party, the Freedom Party. And he had a little minority, and for the next 30 years, Ben-Gurion was essentially the loyal opposition 
in a country that was complete, a government completely dominated. Begin was the Begin. Oh, Begin. Begin. What did I say? Hungarian. Oh, yeah. Begin was the opposition in a country that was completely dominated by the Labour Zionist Party and its allies. In 1977, in, uh, in, in what was a, a tectonic shift in Israeli politics, Begin became the prime minister and thus ended the 30-year hegemony of the Labour Zionists and the beginning of the rise of the right-wing nationalist Zionist party into, the, into power in Israel. It wasn't a, the shift took another 15 years. Uh, eventually it is Netanyahu who has completely consolidated his grip. And I want to talk about that in a future class. Did I see a hand, David? I was going to ask you about these religious Zionists. Where, which side were they? Right, so. The religious Zionists in 1948 were allied with the labor Zionists. They were not, the, they were not an ultra-religious party the way they are today. Um, and, uh, uh, or an ultra-nationalist party the way they are today. They were religious Jews at the time who were participating in the, the labor Zionist establishment and remained associated with them for many years. They were a very small party. They only start to grow after the Six-Day War. And we'll be talking about that in a future class. Um, and create an alliance with, so the, the, only after the Six-Day War do the religious Zionists and the ultra-nationalist Zionists form an alliance. That alliance is the heart of the governing coalition of Israel today. And that is all a product of post-1967. Um, the revisionists call themselves nationalists? Of course. Of course. The, the, revisionism was, went by the wayside. They became the Cherut party. Eventually, they um, merged with another party and became the Likud party. So, and then there's splinters. You know, there's... So... Uh, Call them heirs of Jabotinsky. You know, I would say that's the best, that best way to think of them. But yes, they are um, right-wing nationalists. Who, uh, and the distinction I'll make again is that might makes right. In fact, that's how the world works. Get used to it, you sniveling leftist. Right? And that's the debate in Israel today. Uh, okay, we have two more classes. Let's stop there and... Uh, uh, we made it almost up to 1948. I think that's good. <laughs> What's the name of this book again that you said we should look up? The Making of Modern Zionism, The Intellectual Origins of the Jewish State. And I suggest you read anything that Shlomo Avner writes. He's 87 years old and he's still writing. Here, here it is. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>